Good morning. I always have to check my watch. I mean, you never know where we are. And so good morning. I do want to make one quick announcement. Mr. Bill is not here today. So we have a, a proxy of somebody who's taking care. So you see that hand right here, Marilyn? She is the treat police. So if you are 17 or under, make sure you fill out those notes and you will get a treat from Miss Marilyn. Everybody heard that right? David, please, stay away. Because then three or four will go missing. Sing with me. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, may you be lifted up. May our voices, may our actions be only used to praise you and to build up your children. To you be glory forever. May the Spirit be here with us today. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you know this. Well, this is my opinion on why we preach. Preaching is not to waste your time. Hopefully it doesn't. Preaching is not to give you warm fuzzies. Preaching has one purpose. It is agenda-driven. I'm telling you right now, I have an agenda. It's to inspire action. If action is not taken, even if you totally disagree with what the person at the pulpit says, if action is not taken, then in a sense you waste that time that you were here. It is to inspire you to do something. Now, as you probably know, we've, we've been in the, sort of in the midst of this small series called How to Kill a Church. So if you ever want to know how to kill a church, if you want to kill this church, there are, we've, we've had, the first one was what? Do nothing. Just absolutely do nothing. Don't get involved. Second one was give nothing. If, if you want to kill this church, do nothing, give nothing. Now, I think that this might be the most important one of the series because this one will destroy not just kill slowly, this will obliterate this church. And it is to find fault. And I put dot, dot, dot in everything or with everything. There is a story. Now, this is a legend. I do not believe in its theology. But there's an, a legend, and I believe it's from India. So, Rosetta, you know, the ears are up. I, I believe this is an Indian legend. That once there was a king... And this king was a very good king, and he would distribute food to all of his wise men. He would distribute, 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 and regularly distribute. So maybe twice a year, distribute food. 
Well, one day there was an eagle flying as he was distributing food, but this eagle had a dead snake in its mouth. And as it passed over the king, some of the poison dripped out of the mouth of the snake and landed in the food. Well, the king finished his distribution of the food. It went out, and the wise men that got that food died. Well, the, the, the mystical being that was in charge of distributing karma was in a dilemma. Well, I don't know who to blame here. Because it's not the snake's fault because he was dead. It's not the eagle's fault because he was just going to eat the snake. And it's not the king's fault. So I can't give any of them death. So he didn't know what to do. So a week later, as he's deciding who to give this bad karma to, some new wise men came to take the place of the old ones. And they said, as they were looking for the king, when they got to the gate of the city, there was a woman sitting at the the front gate. And they said, do you happen to know where the king resides? And she said, oh yes, you go down this street and then you take a right, it's right over there. And they, th- they said, thank you. And she said, but wait, be very careful because that king likes to kill wise men. And immediately, they knew where the karma belonged. Finding fault is the moral of that story. Because once we start looking to place fault on people, It is not just destructive to the organization or those people. The first place it takes root is the destruction of our own souls. There is a saying, do you guys remember, for you of a certain age, do you remember the the cartoon Rocky and Bullwinkle? Do you remember, there was a little clip that they would have, it was the fables, Aesop's fables. Do you remember that? If you were of that age. Well, Aesop is believed to be this guy that lived, and there's different theories of his legend, but there is a quote from this mystical Aesop. It says, Every man, according to to an ancient legend from Aesop, is born in the world with two bags or purses or something suspended from his or her neck. A small bag in the front has his or her neighbor's faults. And then a small bag in the back, but probably bigger, that has his own faults. But because the neighbor's faults is always before his face, he seems to forget that he has faults of his own. I do wonder if that is in our case also. This verse that we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 4 says this. And I'm going to read it in my... Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, unwholesome is subjective. Because you, we have different ideas of what unwholesome might mean. So obviously, I have to go to original language to, to discover what this means. And we'll go back to the text also to, uh, 
so that you can see the contrast. So if you look at this original Greek, which works, right? Sapros. Can you say sapros? Sapros is the word that is translated wholesome, or in some of your translations it says corrupt. Now sapros literally comes from this word that means to decay something or to, to make it putrid or to, to destroy or to break down. Now here's the thing. Sapros is not always bad. Because when something is dead, you want it to break down. Right? Could you imagine if everybody that has died and every fruit that has died and every animal that has died never broke down and decayed and became part of the cycle of what we have? Do you can you imagine what we would see on our land? Just mounds and mounds of dead animals and dead people. God actually made a way for those to go back to a molecular level and to be reused again. We decay. But the thing, the thing that makes decay, or that's important to this, that's central, is that something is dead. Now what he's saying is, don't do it to a living thing. Don't bring decay to a living thing. So if somebody has life, you don't want to destroy their lives. If an organization has life, you don't want to destroy it. And if you do, that is actually the work of the enemy. If you go back, you're going to have to go back a slide, sorry. If you go back to the text, Paul gives you a clue to what this word unwholesome means. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but, so here's the contrast, but what is helpful for the building of others up according to their needs. So he uses a word that destroys. Don't let things that destroy come out of your mouth. Instead, out of your mouth should be stuff that what? Builds up. But it's so much easier, and you know this because we're human, it's so much easier to see the negative. I mean, look in, look in the mirror. And if you have one zit, and all the rest is beautiful, you know, you, I mean, you look in the mirror and you see all this, you know, but you see one thing here, you know your eyes are drawn to that one thing. Come on. Your eyes are drawn, oh, man. I, I once had an activity that I had my kids do when I was a youth pastor. I said, I want you to do this. And I would, and I would bring two girls up, um, and I would say, I want you to make a list of things you do not like about yourself. Okay, so they made this list. I said, now turn to each other, and I want you to verbalize it to the other person, but using it in second person. So if you thought you were too large, you'd say, well, I think you're too fat what they thought about themselves. Or I think that you aren't pretty enough. Or I think that, and you realize what people think about themselves and how destructive it would be to apply it to another person. But we do this. We find fault with ourselves. We find fault with people. We find fault with our country. We find fault with the Seventh-day Adventist church, with 
churches as a whole, as Christians, whatever we want to find fault with, we do, and it snowballs. And God says, that's the opposite of me. And when you verbalize it, and I understand a lot of us find fault with stuff, but when you verbalize it, it makes it that much worse. And we'll have an example of that. Actually, instead of that, we should do this. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. Actually, I'm going to read uh, just a little bit earlier than that, just because I'll give you the, the whole part there. Starting with verse, yeah, oh, it started with verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. In some translations, as you see up there, it says, it does not dishonor others. It doesn't even utter the words to destroy somebody. It actually doesn't even, it, it goes one step further. It says, it actually doesn't even keep the record of the wrong that it did. He or she did. It's gone. But we often find fault with people, and it is totally destructive. I want you to turn to, if you, if you have your text here, because I didn't put it up here, the whole text, turn to 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel 15. I'm going to give you three quick examples of where... It could have been destructive or it was. There was a son of David. His name was Absalom. By the way, Absalom means Abba, Ab means father, Shalom, peace. Father of peace was not the father of peace. Potentially it could have been my father is peace, but that doesn't seem to fit either. And it says this, in the course of time in verse 1, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. By the way, the context of this, if you don't remember, is Absalom just killed his brother because of what his brother did to Absalom's sister. He ran away. He was, he was actually sort of forced out, but then David wanted to bring him back. He, brought, he was brought back, but not into the presence of David. And then it says this, he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, hey, what town are you from? He would, he would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who had, has a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. I don't know if you see what he's doing there. Is he saying, if I were the one who was taking care of you, if I were the, the one who was in charge here, things would be a lot better. And if you remember the story of David and Absalom, is David actually runs for, for his life because Absalom wanted the kingdom. Actually, I've heard some preachers 
equate this to probably what happened in heaven. Is that the enemy was saying to his angels, you know, to the angels that he said, you know, yeah, God is love. I do think there are some good things about God. But if I was part of the Godhead, I would probably do it this way. I would let you guys know just a little bit more. I would probably share, let you share into our council a little bit. Man, if I was here, things would just be a little bit better. I do wonder if we follow, at times, the route of Absalom. We, we don't outright criticize people. That would be bad. What we do is we, we slyly say, if it, if it were up to me, it would probably, we'd probably do better this way. Yeah, the, the Illinois Conference or whatever conference or whatever, the General Conference, the North American Division, if, if, they, if they did this, it would probably be better. I'm going to get to where that's a problem. But we act like we have others best in mind. Let's go to the next one. Same thing happens. Go to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. We're going to start back with verse 1. And Numbers chapter 16 says this. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, on, on son of Peleth, became insolent. They started complaining. And rose up against Moses. With, him, with them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. So they had already been appointed as community leaders and part of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? If you read this whole text, he says, We're all holy, all right? I mean, it sounds right. We're all holy. So who says that you should be the leader? Now, because there are 250 plus the three guys, that doesn't just happen organically. That usually happens from, hey, Joe, what do you think of Moses? And we try to, we, we send out feelers, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? The feelers, we're like, well, I have to find out who my confederates are. Uh, do, do you agree with everything Moses is doing? Uh, what do you think, Elsie? I mean, Moses has been, he, yeah, he's been good, but, but I don't know. I don't think that he should be the leader. I mean, we've been here for so long. What's going on? If it were me, I probably, we would have been in Canaan by now. Doesn't that make sense? We should be in Canaan. We're God's people. But instead, we're waiting here. I, I, I don't understand it. And he gets these community leaders riled up. And they're like, yeah, you're right, Korah. Let's do this. Well, if you remember the story, it doesn't end up well for, for Korah. 
If you look at verse 31, it says this, as soon as, because there, there was going to be a test to see who really was God's, God's voice, it says, as soon as he has finished saying this, all this, which is talking about Moses, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything that they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, the Israelites around them fled. I mean, can you imagine seeing a family? Okay, yeah, I'm getting away from that ground. Uh, uh, They fled shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. I actually believe that this is one of the most grievous sins that the Lord believes is out there. To destroy the character of God's people, God hates that. Because you are destroying who they are. And, and the thing is, is they were claiming to be God's representatives too. We know God has inspired us. And when we do this as God's representatives, we claim his character. And that's what God's character is. But it isn't. He never wants to destroy. He only wants to build. Does that make sense? My last example is an opposite example. And you'll understand why. I want you to go to Exodus 32. Exodus chapter 32, which is just back one book, was a time when when the people of Israel were sinning. They actually built an idol because they didn't trust God. So they build this idol, and in verse 9 it says this. God is talking to Moses, and he says this. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make a great nation out of who? You. Now let me ask you this. If you think logically, did God really just take them out of Egypt to destroy them? Did he really want to destroy the people of Israel? No. I believe that this is a test for Moses. What is your character like? He says, are you going to, because if you look at the promise, he says, I'm going to destroy all of them. And because you're a better character, I'm going to make a nation out of you. That's a temptation. Do you understand? I mean, that, it can be a temptation that he would say, oh, yeah, we'll make a better nation. We'll start all over. Have we ever been tempted with that in other organizations, in other people? Let's just start over, and I'll be the leader of this. So he tests Moses, and Moses says this in verse 31 and 32. So Moses went back to the Lord after he rebuked. He said, the, the, Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, 
What a great sin these people have committed. So he recognized it is a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. He said, if you find fault with them, find fault with me. I only care about one thing, that my people make it in. He could have easily said, God, you're so right. Let's get rid of these people. Let's start over with my nation. But he said no. And I don't think God wanted to destroy Israel. But he's saying, what character are you, Moses? Are you one that will find fault with people or are you one that will go to the depths for their souls? That is the character he's asking of us. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, do you love people? See, here's the thing. We did the do nothing and give nothing, but I believe that finding fault is the root of doing nothing and giving nothing. I have heard plenty of people, and I've even thought thoughts, let's be honest, on how certain conferences don't do what they should be doing. Come on. And so people will talk about withholding their tithes and their offerings. Or I don't like that church, so I'm not going to commit to it. I'm not going to commit to that because those people are in charge. And we point fingers at people, and that gives us an opportunity to justify why we won't commit to a work or to finances of an organization. But what God says is, everybody's faulty. I chose you. Do you remember what he says to Israel? I chose you because you were not large and you weren't powerful. I chose you because you were small. I chose weak, faulty, sinful people to be my people. So guess what? Wherever you go, you're going to find those people. I do want to say this, though. I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth for a second because you know I do this. If you look at the next slide, that doesn't mean that we accept everything as perfect. There is a process that if things are going wrong in our organization with people, but it's a process that, is, that we know that is found in Matthew 18. If there is something that is bothering me about Tom, I'm just using an example. There is nothing that bothers me about Tom because he's such a good guy. But if there was, what should I do first? Go to him. If it is not resolved, what should I do next? Bring two or three righteous people, then we talk. If it's still not resolved, church, now there's debate on who that means, if it's church leadership or what, and we try with one purpose, to redeem a relationship. That's the purpose. The sad thing with fault finders is they often don't feel, do this process. If I have something wrong with Tom, he's usually not the first person I'm going to go to. I might tell Mike, hey, you know what I think about Tom? 
yeah, I just think this about Tom. And Mike might agree or not, but Mike might tell somebody else. Might just tell his wife. Mike, you know, or, or somebody over here. It, so, but here's where the ball gets started. There is a process. If you think things can be better, but we go through the process. The challenge with fault finding is we do usually a reverse process. We tell everybody, and then when we have our confederates, then we attack. We build our armies. I think the problem with fault finding and the root of it is that we say, I am the standard. I have a higher standard than you. And so I can talk about you because I am closer to the Lord. How sad when this happens. And what ends up happening is we push people away from the Lord by doing this. So here's where you, cl- you question, what is your motive? Is your motive that you want things your way? You are the standard, so you need them your way, and so you will let people know this? Or are you going to follow the Matthew 18 model that says, I only care in redeeming a person, redeeming an organization of God's people? Remember that that this is God's church. So when you speak against God's church, his bride, remember that. If you're going to speak against some man's bride in front of their face, because God sees everything, Just be careful, all right? If you're going to speak against God's church, his bride, or God's children, which might even be worse, speaking about somebody's children, just be careful because there will be consequences. But if you are going to, if your motive is, I want to redeem somebody for the kingdom of God to build up the community, to build up their life, then that is truly the character of God's church.